0: Orville
1: Roach. Welcome back, folks. It's been about over a month, maybe a month and a week since we've been live. Um, I think our producer is uh, on board. Are you with us, Mr. Producer?
2: I certainly am. I certainly am indeed.
1: Sound like you just got out of bed.
2: No, uh, I have uh I think I might be getting sick. I'm still uh envious of the third world immune system you refer to yourself having quite frequently. Uh I I have the opposite of that. Uh if there was a number above first uh I would throw that out there uh for the first world immune system, but uh I I get sick at the drop of a hat. So losing the voice a little bit, but we're in we're in the building. We're ready to we're ready to make things happen.
1: All right. We're still working on solving um, a technical problem, which we, we're working around it. Um, but we want to um, get it to, to the way we want, and hopefully our listeners won't notice any difference. But we we know what the difference is, so we won't say anything. But uh, hopefully by the next show we'll have it we'll have it fixed. It's another one of those things that are driving us crazy, but we shall not give up.
2: That's that's exactly right. We, we push forward, we carry on. I, uh, I am still as we're still and and I believe the audience knows this. We operate remotely now. Um, I am still loading up the studio here. So, uh, sound bites to come sound bites to come. All
1: right. Uh, speaking about first and third world immune systems, um, I was under significant bioterrorism attack uh, in the house uh, with the, uh, the young ones. As the older one who just turned four this past Valentine's Day uh, does go out to school every day. And, you know, once you let them out to, to the public environment, such as school, um, all sorts of things work their way back into the, into, into the home. And, uh, right. try as they may, the bacteria, the virus and the enzymes, whatever tries, tries very hard to, uh, well, they, they're very successful with other members of the family. I'll, I'll drop no names. Um, but, uh, I've been able to fight it off. However, to be completely transparent, uh, there was a significant warfare attack The last two weeks uh, Which I was successfully Able to fight off But it did buckle one knee Um, I do know Who the specific culprit is However Because since he is a blood relative I will spare him Um, But uh, I did have to say Nice try You almost got me (laughs)
3: There
2: you go Trust so, uh, trust someone in the home to try and bring you down, huh?
1: The sniffles anyone may hear has nothing to do with that. It's just uh, I do have to run the air conditioning because I get direct. Well, you know from being in in the in the bunker, we get direct sunlight, especially That's during right. daylight saving time hours. So we have got to keep the bunker cool. So that if you hear exactly that noise in right. the background, uh. As I said before we brought you on, Mr. Producer, it's been about a month and a week, maybe a month and two weeks since our last show. A lot has transpired. Yeah, I
3: think that
2: sounds about accurate.
1: Um, a lot has transpired uh, internally within OCG in the world, which we care and don't care about. But um,
3: That's
1: we do know that since... Uh, my wife and probably your wife uh, could not give uh, two hoots about what I'm about to talk about. Uh, that the NFL draft is coming up in two days. <clears throat> oh, that it is. And 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 just for a brief 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 moment, um, your team uh, is picking number two this year.
2: Yeah, if uh, if they can't if they can't trade out of it, that's where they'll be picking.
1: All right, so real quickly, can you tell me two names that you guys would be looking at to start the rebuilding of this franchise?
2: Yeah, well, as a fan, there's only one name for me, and that's Solomon Thomas, um, if not Solomon Thomas, trade, But there's still – you know, it's hard, and we'll we'll preface this for the studio audience that does care, even the folks who maybe are not privy to it. Everything you hear the week leading up to the draft – could be intentionally put out there by teams because there's a lot of uh, a large game of chess, if you will. Yeah. So you might leak something that you want another team to believe so they try and trade up to get the person that you're saying you're going to pick because you know that they want that person and whatever. It's a big game of chess, but uh, Solomon Thomas is the only name. There's some talk about Mitchell Trubisky being the best quarterback in the draft and, and them picking him, but uh, the general thought is that there's not a single individual quarterback in the draft that's worth uh, a first-round pick or at least not high in the first round. So I really hope we don't go that route. I would be happy with Solomon Thomas. If not Solomon Thomas, then I want to see a trade. Okay. you got to um, have at least one of your three squads in the top ten, right? The Giants yeah, maybe? Or? The,
1: no, the Jets are – the New York Jets are in the or top the ten, and um, I'm hoping maybe they if they don't – pick an offensive lineman. That if Leonard Fournette is still on the um, board, they'll take the running back, and that's it. When we come back with our next show, we'll 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 be able to talk about how things have sourced themselves out and who's done what, and we'll know uh, if the San Francisco Forty Winers, I mean Niners, are uh, heading up or still on the downward tra- trajectory.
2: Yeah, well, things can't get much worse than where we were at, so I'm going to I'm going to predict heading
1: up, but we'll uh we'll see. All right. Uh word on the street before we get into our topic <clears throat> is that uh the Morales clan may be uh taking a trip which will require them boarding a uh aircraft. That is, that
2: is absolutely to, correct. The streets have not steered you wrong with that rumor.
1: Yeah, my, my ears are always uh, pinned to the ground, listening to what the streets are telling me. Um, so just for public consumption, um, will this be a domestic or international plane ride?
2: This is going to be an international affair, my friend.
1: Okay. So there's going to be many hours of armrest gripping.
2: <laughs> that's, that's entirely correct. However, uh, without disclosing too much, I will say that my better half has um, or is and may, and maybe and she, I believe, is listening, so maybe you can give some advice. I don't know if your wife or anyone you know has ever done this, but because of the the length of the flight and her anxiety of flying even short distances, she has given serious consideration of going to her doctor and maybe seeing if she can't get something prescribed for that flight to try and, uh, take the edge off, i.e. by knocking
1: her cold out. Well, that's a personal choice. Uh, I always tell people, uh, um, you know, if it's always all reliable, uh, of course I never, uh, Suggest. I always say, you know, there's always jack right. Daniels, friendly jack
2: <laughs> but old I, of jack course Daniels, of, yeah.
1: of course i jest, digest, digest, just kidding, right. um well, you know me, your friendly neighborhood uh flying comforter <laughs>
2: that's that's right.
1: nothing to worry uh, about uh, nothing to worry about yeah
2: no you know um i've gotten a lot better with it uh i still i still you know get the anxiety or the the fleeting thoughts the fearful thoughts but um you know coming from maybe where i was two years ago three years ago i've gotten a lot better um it's almost and i think i got this from talking to you actually and you being an experienced flyer as well um it's 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 kind of a higher uh like a higher level way to perceive it maybe and just the idea that you don't have control <laughs> one way or the other right if, if the plane's going down or if it's meant to go down it'll go down there's really nothing you can do about it once you're in that seat so stressing over every turbulent bump or every twist and turn uh every mechanical noise that you might hear echo in the cabin that you have no idea if that's something normal or one of the engines just exploded
3: um
2: (laughs) you have you have no control over it so you just kind of you let it ride until hopefully you land safely um and having that mindset has kind of put me at ease a little bit but you know i still feel a little bit of it and then of course you know, you don't want to see, uh, you know, have a hard time watching her go through it, even though I think she's maybe gotten a little better um, recently. But, yeah, there's still a still a good deal of fear there on her end.
1: So I have obviously, since uh, my wife is a uh, white knuckler, you know what that term means, right?
2: Yeah, you you okay. described us as that when I told you how right. we were at
1: the beginning. So white knucklers are people who are afraid, you know, of fair fear of flying or... A lot of anxiety around flying, and you know, grip grip those armrests, or like in my case, flying with the misses and or the girls when they were younger, you know, grip grip the other person sitting next to them with the death grip. Yeah. Um. And I've had that death grip on me for ten and a half hours from Heathrow to San Francisco. Um. Not going to London because that's an overnight flight and usually those persons are sleeping, so I'm free of the death grip. But the return flight is during the day, and so they're wide awake and you know, the death grip. So, yeah, <clears throat> but um, fair not, fair not. Uh, if you're traveling internationally, you're going to be on a 767 or a 777 or a, a god forbid an airbus but um (laughs)
3: no, i don't think uh
2: (laughs) yeah i don't think there's any airbus involved um i think they're all boeing aircraft i told you i'd send you the itinerary for you to check down but it's all through united uh through my united card to try and get oh you're you're
1: going with the beatdown airline
2: we're going we're going with the beat down airline, <laughs> that's right, yeah, hopefully they don't ask me to uh give up my seat or I might end up missing oh. some teeth.
1: Oh, that'll be a good wrestling match,
2: <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's the airline we're going with, and I think when I briefly looked like you said, all uh seven seven sevens or seven sixty sevens going there, it's one flight to New York and then across the pond. And then coming back, it's a, a straight shot to uh, Toronto, I believe, and then to the Bay Area.
3: Okay.
1: Well, so, um, yeah. we'll talk more about that as the time gets near. Let's get into our Will topic. Indeed. I had a little play on words with the title. It is what it is, or is it?
3: <laughs> Cause, cause, <laughs> I saw that.
1: Cause, because that is the question we keep asking ourselves. We're we're now two months into our new our new world. Although, for the sake of our listeners, we've been quote unquote let's call it maybe mm, sixty to sixty percent to seventy five percent practicing for the last year. Um, That's in right. In preparation. Yeah. Um, so when when the switch was flipped, it wasn't any significant change for us. We've already been practicing in, this, in that mode um, of the new paradigm of treatment in California. And I don't know if we stated this previously or not, but I'll just state it again just for the record and posterity. We were um, uh, the first program, residential program in the state of California to get certified under the new organized delivery system and the county we're in is the first county to go live. Um, other counties uh, will be going live May 1st, I think two. And I think then a number of other counties, there's 58 counties in the state of California, for those of you who don't know. Um, and then a number of counties are going live July 1. So we went live officially February 1st, um, first residential provider in the in the state. And so we're now two months and change in, which I think, you know, someone may think that's not a lot of time. It isn't, but it's enough time under the live system versus pre-live to uh, talk about, its pros, its cons, the good, the bad, the ugly, and um, is it all that it's cracked up to be, no pun intended.
0: (laughs) Great.
2: (laughs) I think that's a great idea. Um, And I think with you being in the position that you're in and myself being in the position that I'm in, um, we'll be able to offer different perspectives of maybe how it's touching our position uh, directly.
1: Well for me the being the first provider to, to start puts you in a position there's a pro and a con. The pro is okay, we finally get rolling. We've been to sing, studying, going to meetings, and you know, talking and hearing about it forever, so now boom, we're 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 doing it. Now it counts. The con is you're also the canary in the mines. That's right. Meaning that you're starting, the county's also starting at the same time. And so all of the kinks that are in the system have to be worked out in real time. There was no practice time, no preseason, none of that. Um, and now that I mentioned that, maybe I might maybe I, now that I mentioned that on in our show, maybe I might mention that to the powers that be that that might be a good idea for other providers who are going to be rolling out in the future that maybe they have a preseason um, <laughs> <laughs> so they get an opportunity to so they don't have to you know fix things and fix you know quote unquote systems in real time. The reason why I say that is the county, you know, when they have a person who's in charge of widgets, that's all that they're in charge of. So they can spend all day on, you know, fixing the widget, counting the widget, you know, rearranging the widget, et cetera, et cetera. Well, most providers don't have a widget person. They have people who do a number of different things. And so they can't spend all of their time on a widget. And so the county has a luxury in that regard where the providers don't. So if if there's a kink in the widget, uh, we got to fix it while still providing services. We can't shut down the services. We can't shut down the engine, fix the part, and then reboot the engine. We don't have that luxury. They can, because they're not "quote unquote" providing services. They're monitoring, and you know, and you know, they have their own part and role in the system in terms of admissions and, and and authorizations and things of that nature. So they have their own systems and kinks in their own systems, but it all rolls downhill. There's an impact downhill. So when there's a kink in their system, it impacts us. Because when they fix it, that means we have to then change and fix something, you know, in correlation to what they've fixed and changed. And so this is what we're doing and experiencing in this first couple of months. While still, here's a good, you know, here's my favorite analogy. I'll just roll right into it. While still flying the plane. We still got to fi- fly the plane while we're working on some technical difficulties. So. Yeah. Is a pro, is a con to being the first. Um, five years from now, we'll be able to brag. We were the first. Right now, you know, week to week, it might be, yeah, we're the first versus, damn it, why do we have to be the first? <laughs> um, because, uh, and this is neither a negative or a positive, this is just how it is. It's a reality, and we embrace it. Uh, other providers do come to us to, you know, talk about our experience. What's it been like? How's this working? How's that working? What'd you do when this happened? What form are you using for this? What system are you using for that? Et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we're happy to share. We don't believe in reinventing the wheel. We all help each other, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that's another role that we're playing. And, and that's a role that the we're playing it on our own, i.e., you know, where anyone who asks we're helpful, we say no problem, call us, email, all of that stuff. But the county is also pushing that, hey, you know, OCG is doing it. If you have a question about what, how you might want to set up your systems or your policies or your this or that, contact them. They may be able to help you. So. You may not be, Mister Producer, experiencing it in your arena, um, but that's some of the things I'm experiencing it in, in my arena. So not so much at the program level, but just you know above that. Um, sure,
2: that makes sense.
1: I think on uh, the 24th of March, I went to one of the our larger providers in the county, Project 90. I did a training for them just on this subject, you know, about preparing and for the organized delivery system and we call it ODS for short. So that's what we'll use the acronym. And lot, you know, lots of questions, but a lot of it is going to be you know, for, for these providers that are going live in July is go live. And then you gotta, you know, see what actually works for you. Cause what works for OCG may not work for another provider. The um, right. you know the context of what we might explain to them of what we're doing, or the um, the concept I should say not context the concept may work, but when it gets down to the nuts and bolts, it may not work for them. They have to they may tweak it to make it work. But so that's the, you know the different roles that we're playing because we're first. Yeah. Um, We talked about this uh, last year as we were working our way towards the February 1st start. Um, The biggest thing for OCG, the biggest change, is uh, obviously is the uh, reduction of the residential experience. We were the last quote-unquote long-term residential provider um, in the county, at least, and probably on the whole peninsula. And when I say long-term, I mean, you know, six months or more. Um, not even talking old school long-term, you know, which, you know, which is, you're starting at 12 months, you know. Right. Yeah. You when know, I've been talking about you going anywhere until you've gotten at least 12 months under your belt in treatment. But, uh, so now in the new paradigm of the ODS, um... Residential is, you know, 90 days, um, with uh, a rare exception of a, an extension of 30 days to make it 120 days, four months. But 90 days is the norm, and as a- anyone who has worked in alcohol and drug treatment for more than two years knows and all of the studies all 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 of the studies federal level all the way down to the local level um say the longer people are in residential treatment the better the outcomes but ultimately in right or wrong this is where we're at ultimately you know this is a, a monetary decision residential is the highest cost of care and It's you know it's kind of like a uh, a compromise. However and I know I knew a lot of them talking here, Mr. Producer, but um, it's almost like a uh, not us to providers, by the way, because we didn't make this deal, but the, the powers that be, who made the deal with the feds, et cetera. It's kind of like a deal with the devil, because mm-hmm. by restricting or, or, or limiting the length of re- uh, residential treatment to 90 days. Um, and even though the next level of care, intensive outpatient, there's no limits on that, okay? Um, but on one hand, by limiting it, you've, you're have you making an attempt, similar to what they do in the managed care world, you're, they're making an attempt to control the expenditures, let's call it, the costs. And what they're willing to give up on the other side are the outcomes. Now, is this what's being said? No, no one's saying that, but that's what the reality is. When you shorten treatment, there's a cause and effect. It's not, oh, we'll shorten the treatment and we're still expecting, and not only expecting, we're going to get the same outcomes. No, that's not how it works is a cause and effect.
3: Yeah. yeah. The,
1: providers know, the providers know this cause and effect. We see it, we live it. You'll talk about it a little bit because you see it, you live it. You shorten treatment, residential treatment, the residential experience, and take OCG out of the picture again because we have a little bit of a different setup. But the normal provider that has intensive outpatient is more like, you know, storefront type deal like going to an office or um something like that or like an like the old outreach centers which i'm saying to you mr producer but you you've never visited one of the old outreach centers in in new york that that daytop used to have but for any of our listeners that has would know um you know, the intensive outpatient program would be like going to the outreach center on a daily basis or however many days has been prescribed for you based on your needs. But it was no substitute for being in the self-contained womb of the residential environment, the safety of the residential environment. Because when you're an intensive outpatient or any level of outpatient, what what's the thing that the the, the outpatient client gets to do or is faced with that the residential client isn't. They're exposed to the outside world. They have to go back to their home environment, whatever it may be, positive, negative, good, bad, ugly, whatever. That's what they're going back to before they then return the next day for whatever amount of time or level of care that they're receiving. Whereas the person in residential sleep, eat, live, and receive treatment in that same self-contained environment. So, what do we say now to to these clients that come in? We tell them how much of a privilege it is to get the opportunity to get a residential experience, even if it's only ninety days. The residential experience, it, it's now I, I frame it now as an intervention. It's always been an intervention, but now in in the quote-unquote medical terms, because of its shortness, it really is a short-term intervention to get you off the street, get you an opportunity to regain some normal sleep patterns, normal eating patterns, um, be safe. but you only get that for 90 days. And I think most people, most people who've been in the field for some time would know that at, by 90 days is when someone's, you know, just, just waking up.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, folks can reference our trimester series.
1: Mm-hmm. You're in the, and we'll bounce around. You're, you're, you're in the recovery residence. Explain what that is to our uh, audience and tell us what you're seeing.
2: So um, you know, it, it's interesting. My point of view.
1: By the way, we made that based up.
2: on what you were talking. Say again?
1: I said I just I interjected. We we invented the recovery residence. I just had to throw that out there. That's
2: right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, you know, so what I see, we should get right off the bat um, out there to the listeners, the recovery residence site is um, the site that clients will come to uh, after they have completed 90 days of residential, which is at another one of our sites. So I'm not interacting with or seeing clients day one, from day one, you know, coming from jail or off the street or everything that you just defined. Um, I am seeing clients who have just, just started to scratch the, um, Scratch the surface like we talked about, who have just kind of worked through their first 90 days and um, are now starting to really find out what the beginning of treatment is all about. These are the clients that I am seeing from day one at the site that I work at. Um, So, in that regard, that's unique. That's a change because when we were just one complete residential program um, in multiple sites, the site that I worked at as well as other sites. Uh, we were getting clients, you know, right right off of the street or wherever they were coming from, from day one, um, starting, you know, with the intake process and, and all those things. So that's a change right off of the bat. Um, secondarily, uh, as you kind of mentioned and I can expound upon, um, 90 days is definitely not any kind of term where we could expect um, any kind of great change to happen um, even though this is what the new format looks like, and this is what clients are being funded for as far as residential treatment is concerned. Um, that said, I think we have a very unique thing happening at the site that I work for, uh, with the recovery resident site is that we have, um, you know, worked with the County, uh, in this kind of model that, um, like you said, we were the first, our program is the first to has this is where we have, a. Um, a dorm essentially the recovery residence is essentially like a dorm or a sober living environment uh on site that is within a stone's throw away from our medical certified building where the outpatient services take place and one requisite of residing with us in the recovery residence is that they the clients are participating in the outpatient program so while 90 days is what's being funded for quote unquote residential treatment, which is what they're getting at our other site. They come over here and begin their outpatient process through our Medi-Cal certified program and Medi-Cal certified site while residing with us in the recovery residence. So even though we are not um, on paper or technically a residential program, uh, it very much has a residential feel to it because of those two components being combined. Um, which I actually think is awesome. It was um, a very uh, intuitive idea, whomever, whatever group of folks came up with that. Um, And it, and it's working. I think, I think it's working well, obviously the old model where residential was like you said, you know, up to 12 months, 12 months was kind of the start. Um, you were getting everything that you needed under the roof at that time and then being sent back out into the real world on the day was that you had completed your residential uh, portion of the program and then maybe coming back once a week or once every other week to participate in what was then. That that was, I guess, the outpatient part of it to maybe uh, continue on to graduate the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, the metaphor that I have come up with that I like to use is that the way this new delivery system of treatment works um, is kind of like a a step system. So you have your 90-day residential and you're going to step down, and now you're stepping down into IOP or intensive outpatient. For those of you uh, who don't know all the the acronyms that the host and I are throwing throwing at you left and right,
1: your IOP being
2: intensive outpatient.
1: California loves their acronyms. I said I was just saying California right. loves their acronyms.
2: Yes, indeed. So we have our 90-day residential component, and then they step down into intensive outpatient, which is through our Medi-Cal site here while residing with us, many of them here at the recovery residence. And then that can take another six to nine months. Uh, so right there we're already looking at nine to 12 months. Um, and then after that, they can continue to step down again into ODF, outpatient drug-free, which is similar to what I was just describing in the old model where after your year of residential you could come back for once a week to go on to graduate the program. Um, But the process is kind of happening in segments, and it's it's gradual. And so the, the silver lining, or what I think is a positive to this, Is that instead of being confined to the facility, where you're living in a bubble of some sort for nine to twelve months, and then on the day of your the coin ceremony that we used to have, just a ceremony um, acknowledging the completion of a client's residential term, um, you know, thank you very much for coming. See you later. Best of luck to you, and you're you're out (laughs) into the real world, Uh, and that can be a very extreme shock. I tell a story of the first time I visited New York, your neck of the woods mm-hmm. during the winter, and uh, people told me to dress warm. And being from the Bay Area, that was me showing up to SFO in a hooded sweatshirt and a nice thick pair of jeans. And uh, when the plane landed, I'll never forget. I, I go to where we're I'm the carousel to pick up my luggage. I pick up my luggage. And I'm walking to exit the airport and the automatic glass sliding doors open and I am hit with a cold like that put a new definition on the word for me. And I said, holy smokes, that's, I could feel it in my bones. Um, And so that may be akin to what some clients experienced in the old model of treatment where you were, um, you know, for lack of a better term and not to carry on too long, you're, you're in a very extreme, rigid, sh- sheltered almost environment for a year, and now you're set free uh, to practice everything that you've learned, and uh, Godspeed. And um, that that could be a bit of a shock to have that kind of extreme transition, whereas in this model, of course, 90 days residential isn't ideal, but you get your 90 days residential you step down, you're still in treatment, you're still engaged in groups, and, and you're residing at a, a sober recovery residence, um, which kind of has a residential feel, but you have some time throughout the day to go to medical appointments as needed and things of that nature. However, you're still returning to us, and um, it kind of it acts as a nice little middle ground where you're getting just a sprinkling of the outside world and you going out and being responsible but having to return. Um, before you're, you're set free after this portion of treatment. So, um, obviously, it's still an adjustment period for everybody. Um, being the first, as you've stated to the audience with us being the first, there's still a learning curve. Um, there are still some mistakes I'm making in my position, and, of course, my whole goal and, and the reason I'm in this position is to provide the best environment I can to the residents that we have here, the clients that we have here, and of course, uh, the smoother things are, the better anything is delivered to them. Um, so they have had to be soldiers in some regards to adapt to adjustments. But such is life. You're going to have to adapt to things constantly. Um, and so, overall, I think it's um, I think at least on my end at the recovery residence, uh, it's a very good it's a very good thing, a very good model.
1: Well, let me just state first, for the record. Uh... How disrespectful you are to the Monsignor by calling his model uh what'd you call it?
2: Um oh what a maybe overbearing, sheltered a little bit.
1: Yeah, some he yeah, some negative connotations. Wow. I'll have to uh let me just write that down. Next time I talk to oh, him boy. let him know. Um no, that's all <clears throat> that's that's that is what it is um, but I'll tell you this I'll tell you what's not, and that is it's a very different ball game in the residential environment the t c residential environment uh trying to do t c things hold on to those TC things with people that would clients that would not normally be in roles that they are in due to the shorter length of treatment I hope that made sense
2: Yeah, uh, run that one down again
1: so you know in the TC in the, the, the residential TC there are certain roles that and 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 job responsibilities that clients have right and some right. of them carry with it great power great authority et cetera, because they play a significant role in the structure and the operations of the you know of, of the the program and historically for example someone in a coordinator's position or the chief's position the person who runs the floor you know, that would be a, you know, five, six, seven-month member at minimum.
2: Yeah, right, right,
1: exactly. Um, and so, but when you're operating on the 90-day treatment cycle in the residential TC now, you know, someone's becoming a chief after two months or a coordinator at two months.
3: Yeah.
1: And in rea- and, in, and now that's the reality And our job, like you stated, is to adapt to the reality Um, and also not only adapt to the reality, but adapt to the results of of that reality. Now, what would those obvious results be? Well, people who have not achieved personal growth but have been awarded vested status, obviously the results of that aren't going to be positive on the front side. So people that are in those positions of, of, of authority within the treatment environment, um, you know, find themselves doing things that you would expect for somebody that's in the house, two months, three months, but things right. that you would not expect, <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Th- but, but things you would not expect. And the key word here is expect, but not that you wouldn't be surprised if it happened because people are people, humans are humans, addicts are addicts. But you would not expect a seven month member to do something that a two month member would do. You'd expect them to know better, have learned, have experienced and have learned from that experience and have, have incorporated change in their behavior and in their attitude after seven months. Right. But at two months, that's not the expectation. However, that person though is being, you know, for lack of a better description, you know, Pigeonholed and forced into roles that they're not really ready for. So right. the program right. is struggling in that area um, and is uh, experiencing some turbulence in that area, and ultimately we'll have to ride it out and figure it out. Maybe there's a tweet that we haven't thought of yet, I don't know. Um like I said, we're just two and a half months in. Um but even though we've been practicing, you know, for the you know, a better part of almost a year, um when it really starts is when it really hits you. <laughs>
2: um <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. You can, uh, you can role play and do things in theory all you want, but yeah, when, when, uh, the bullets are live, it's a different kind of
1: feeling. Right. So one of the things that we have to figure out in terms of what's working and what isn't is how do we adapt staff wise in terms of our own, uh, internal view Our own internal context of this new ODS system and the impact that it's having on residential treatment from the way we knew it. Um, How do we adapt, still be able to keep the important aspects of the TC, give clients a TC experience, um, and at the same time, Maybe not have some of the experiences that
0: they have had
1: in the first couple of months. I do not know the answer to the question of whether or not those two are could those two things can exist at the same time because of the just because of the reality of the time time and how people don't change overnight. Um, And if that ends up being the case, well, then that's a reality that we have to deal with and cope with and figure it out. One thing we're not going to do, we're not going to do is we're not going to run from it. We're not going to say, oh, well, just forget, you know, forget about the TC. Absolutely not. That's not going to happen. We'll do what we've always done, which is... uh, and what has always happened in the t c from nineteen sixty three all the way to two thousand seventeen, and that is you tweak it, you adjust it right to whatever you're presented with um, but I can sit here and say we haven't just figured it out, figured out what that adjustment may be yet that's a work in progress,
2: of course, yeah, it uh I think it's an internal acronym, although you might blame it on the state of California, but it takes a lot of um, API, a lot of API. Yeah. Uh, we have that We have that here, internally assess, plan, implement, evaluate. But we're still in the assessment period, you know? Yep. Um You can't, on a whim, see one type of incident occur and, oh, needs to be a change immediate because, obviously, even when the TC is functioning as it should in the old model, where time was on our side, you'd still have incidents that took place that you know you you would like have not to taken place. Um, but yeah, you're going to have to look at a kind of a large pool of data, and you know what what have we seen over X amount of time and you know, and then making tweaks and adjustments here or there until it, it will always be an imperfect system, but to get it to as well oiled as you possibly can, it's just going to take time. We're going to, we're going to have to sit back and and really do some um, really good evaluation when we can, you know,
1: and staff, we have to also, it's very important that we adjust our own expectations.
3: Yeah, that, you know this that's is this is too.
1: yes, and and this has been an ongoing thing, you know, in 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 this industry, throughout. Um, especially for people who've been in one, let's say, quote unquote, system for a long time, and then something changes in that system, and they haven't adapted their thinking or changed their thinking to move with that change. Their expectation is still being based on a system that no longer is being used and so right. <clears throat> oftentimes the question for a staff person um, internally becomes well what what can I determine is success um, or progress that's a better word progress and that has to be an ever evolving thing mm-hmm. because one addicts change, two the treatment paradigm change. Like it has changed significantly. Um, and then there's always been little changes in treatment along the way over the years anyway. But the first thing that must change is my own interpretation of what is progress. And I've always said, you've always, you've always heard me say over the years that there's no one, no one, no one, no one that can be in OCG, any of our treatment, um, programs for 30 days and not experience some change
3: true
1: it's impossible
2: yeah that's absolutely true i agree with that and so as
1: long as long as so if that's my attitude that well i know for a fact that if you're here 30 days you have experienced some change now you yourself i.e the client may not be able to self-identify it but i the staff person can identify it and there might be some very simple things that Someone may say, oh, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Well, like here's an obvious one. Well, an addict who comes in off the street, not someone who comes in out of jail, but comes in off the street. Well, one of the things we know for a fact that has been happening is they haven't been sleeping properly, right? They haven't been eating right. Well, for 30 days, we, one thing we know is that after a couple of weeks, you know, week to 10 days, you know, your, sleep, your sleeping pattern starts to come back. Your, your appetite starts to come back and you start to eat properly. We can tell by how many times you get up for seconds, um, et cetera. Um, How hard it is to wake you up in the morning because you're finally getting a decent uninterrupted sleep, REM sleep, deep sleep, body starting to recuperate and recover, needs more sleep. We still keep you up 18 hours a day. Boy, we're terrible. But... um, (laughs) So there's you can find so many small things that a person has changed and make them aware of that um, to indicate progress. But I have to have that attitude and be aware that those things exist so that I can then relay them to the client because the client's not going to think that they've made any change because they're kind of looking at large behavior and large thought process, which happens over time. Not It's not going to happen in 30 days. But small right. behavioral things and – Things that are uh, externally controlled that force small behavioral changes upon you, I can make you aware of those things as a staff person and get you to start thinking in those small incremental terms, which is what we want. Small incremental change. Not the big flip, where you can then end up having the big flip and fall.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Right.
1: So, The vision, you know, this, when this ODS thing started, you know, this big discussion way back when, three, four years ago, you know, the vision was that it would provide a continuum of care, which it does. uh, Barriers to treatment would, 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 that would be a focus that barriers to people coming into treatment would be diminished with the goal being or the vision being eliminated? Uh, Nope, not yet. Because with the bureaucracy, one thing bureaucracy is good at is actually creating barriers, unintended consequence type barriers. So we develop a system over here to do this, but don't realize that it has this unintended consequence, which creates a barrier for people getting into treatment. And then obviously government is like a, you know, aircraft carrier in terms of how fast it moves, which it me i.e. means it doesn't move very fast, moves very slow. And so they may put a system together and they may need to tweak it because, Hey, a barrier is created over here. So we need to just turn it up just two degrees over this way. And that can take seven months.
3: That's right.
1: Turn it two degrees. So oftentimes in their quest to, you know, have a vision of not uh, creating barriers, they create barriers. So that's still a work in progress. The other thing was uh, obviously the state of California wants to prove, because the ODS is a pilot in the state of California, five-year pilot program. And what they want to prove to the feds is that by having this organized delivery system and using the federal Medicaid dollars as the funding mechanism, that Um, more people will get served and there will be better outcomes. Well, one thing is certain. I, I do agree more people will be served. I have a serious doubt at this moment in time. I'm not saying permanent. I'm just saying at this moment in time about the better outcomes. That will strictly depend, and this is, again, moving into your arena, That will strictly depend on the success of the client in the longest stage of treatment, which is the intensive outpatient stage, the level two stage, I believe it's called, Um, because that's where it's unlimited. And now with OCG, because we offer housing support in that level of care, um, our outcomes might be better than regular program, IOP programs who don't have housing. And so if a client has, is housing challenged and let's say it has to be in a shelter or is living on someone's couch or is homeless or what have you, their outcomes may not be as good because the the client has barriers for them making it to the treatment program on a daily basis. Whereas we won't have that because like you said, it's a stone's throw away and we march them over there like a mil, you know, like a military. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right.
1: With drill sergeants, you know, man, manning the walkway to make sure they make it.
3: exactly right.
1: Um, so we have kind of like a captive audience. Um, but we still experience our fair share of, you know, effort, I'm out of here, you know, uh, experiences.
3: Yeah, yeah, we yeah,
2: no shortage of those. Um,
1: but that that, you know, people being in the recovery residence and participating in that level, Is going to be where the bread's going to be buttered, meaning clients now in this new treatment experience, this new paradigm of the organized delivery system, they're either going to make it in that level since that's going to be the unlimited stage. A person can be there six months, it can be there 16 months. It's based on what their need is. There's no limitations on it. Um, And their ability to take advantage of that Mm -hmm. because right now, OCG is the only one that has that. I do know um, Project 90, which is another um, program that's older than us in the county, been around 40 plus years. Um, They're going to be doing recovery residences also, which I applauded them on and encouraged them to do. On a smaller scale, I have multiple um, residences rather than a big one like what we have, but the concept is still the same and we'll still work the same. Um, So the jury will be out on the outcomes. That's where the jury will be out, and we'll see. UCLA is going to study it um, after maybe year two, see where we're at. Um, And like I said, in terms of more people being served, yes. Uh, Better outcomes, don't know yet. Don't know about that one. There's always been a uh, a fight. I won't call it between good and evil, but always been a fight between quality versus quantity.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that is age old in this field.
1: Right. So quality means well, less people are going to get served, but the ones that get served, they're going to get very good treatment. And quantity is yeah, we're going to serve more people, but our outcomes may not be as good. So, and they go back and forth, you know, on what's, you know, obviously what drives it is money. And sometimes when money is plentiful, you know, it doesn't drive the decision. When money is not plentiful, it drives the decision. And that's just a reality. No way to escape that.
2: So, we do our best. We do our best to, in my role specifically, our job, create and provide and maintain uh, an environment that is conducive to recovery and change and give the clients everything we can with the tools that we've been given to use. And uh, if it ends up through some of these outcome studies, I think you just said UCLA was going to study it, where it looks like maybe things are not as um, bright as the predictors had predicted, Then the bar will be in their
1: court. Let me give you an example of one of the things that, as as providers, one of the providers, all the providers probably in the state are going to be interested in knowing. Not after this will be after one year. The not they're not a lobbying group, but let's say the. The association that represents most of the providers at the state level asked of the state because a person in that's going to go into residential treatment, they give you two episode maximums within a 12 month period. So you can have one 90 day episode get stepped down to outpatient, and let's say while you're an outpatient, you experience multiple relapses, and you can get referred back up to a higher level of care residential again. But that can only happen two times within a 12-month period. So in theory, a person can get up to six months of residential within 12 months, not continuous, but two episodes that would be in totality six months. Right. So what we, said, what we said to the state was, wait a second now, why don't you just make it one episode and make it six months long? And their answer, and I kid you not, was, well, we want to see what the data says after maybe a year. Our response back was, Really? In two thousand two, when prop thirty six and no one outside of California knows what that is, and i 'm not going to explain it, but it, it was another attempt at funding treatment in the state of california but when prop thirty six came around, that was supposed to be for people who were you know just in on the early fringes of addiction, just you know new into their drug use and you know first year or two, and we were trying to catch them and prevent them from getting into the grips of long-term drug use. That's what the, uh, division or the, you know, of, of who they were going to be capturing and saving. Now, while we're, you know, all of us, you know, old school, wrinkled, aged, uh, <laughs> you know, extra sharp New York cheddar cheese type providers, are sitting around looking yeah. at each other saying, yeah, right. And, of course, who, are we get, who did we get on the Prop 36? The 10-, 15-, 20-year addict. And we told them that. This is what's going to happen. You're not going to get the person that just started using six months ago. Those people don't end up in, in, in the environment where they would then qualify for Prop 36, which is jail. You know what I'm saying? They get diversion programs, yeah. and they get you know, probation, and they get other things. They don't get locked up. It's the ten year addict who may have committed a crime that's worthy of them getting sentenced to jail time, et cetera et cetera and of course that's what was that's what happened and it took them two two three years to kind of you know and and that was only a five year project by the way, and it was only a five year thing and it was like three years before they figured it out and realized that wow, we're just getting the same you know people the long term drug abusers, well, yeah. <laughs> That, that's, that's what occupies – that's what's in the criminal justice system, long-term addicts. So right. when, when the state says, well, we're going to look at the data, we're like, well, you know, in a sense, we're the data. We're the data. That's why we asked. You know, why, why don't you do it this way instead of that way because we can already tell you that you'd have better outcomes if you give someone six months rather than trying to split it up into 2 90-day episodes.
3: Right, yeah right.
2: Listen. We have plenty of that data in file on hand.
1: Well yeah, but they but they listen not. They listen not, of course, and so we have to go through that charade of of you know seeing the data once again. Like the data is not there already um, for them to realize that that makes more sense. So I say all that to say, on one hand, you know they have the vision of you know. Of what they want to accomplish and how and how this is going to make it happen, and but it's almost like bureaucracy has this just has this way of 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 grabbing holds of people's mind. They can't think. They can't think, and then
3: mm-hmm.
1: simultaneously not not thinking. They don't listen. So normally. You know, when you're flying on a when you're when you're a passenger on an airplane, which you and your wife will be shortly.
2: Yes indeed.
1: When the cabin crew gives you instructions, you follow it because they know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. They've been there and done that. And they've probably seen enough. I'll never say everything because no one has seen everything, but they've seen enough. Yeah, and if the flight and if the flight crew, different from the cabin crew, gives you instructions and it's telling you this or that, you listen because they know what they're talking about. So you know we're like the cabin crew and the flight crew, you know, telling them, hey, this is what maybe tweak this here, tweak this there, etc. They don't listen, and then you're gonna have the 747, state of California. <laughs> <laughs> Crashing oh, into man. Edwards Air Force Based in Southern California Because they don't listen
3: oh, When the yeah. feds
1: come in and say So how's this ODS thing working out here in California I don't know what they're doing in New York I don't know what they're doing in Illinois I don't know what they're doing in Michigan And, and the other you know states That have large cities, Pennsylvania, etc I don't know what they're doing there um, But the feds you know, They're going to come and they're going to come asking Okay, How's it, how's it going? We'll see what All the right, answer right. is. We'll see what the answer is. All right, sir, we're past the top of the hour. Um, I don't know if you have any other comments on this subject, but I think I've covered everything I want to cover. Um, we'll keep, obviously, we'll keep our listeners abreast as we go through this experience. Um, if anything comes up that we think is uh, worthy of uh, commenting on, I mean, we're going to comment as we go anyway. Good, bad, or ugly, even if we're just venting. Um but that's all I got. It is what it is, or is it?
2: yeah, I think uh, you know, I think we hit hit it pretty well in in this hour here. obviously, it's uh no no subject that can genuinely be covered in an hour, and like you said, as things come up, we'll comment or we'll mention sometimes, I'm sure we'll have some inside the news segments to drop in further shows about this topic specifically because. You're talking about restructuring the entire system of treatment. So it's a large issue, but I think many of the main topics were covered, and I think it was necessary. And uh, let's hope uh, nobody working on the other side was tuning in. And we don't receive any threatening letters to our organization here.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, but, sir. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, that's it. Well, then we do have um, – Obviously we're gonna to get to the recovery support time segment next and we do have a uh, caller on hold for that it looks like. We got some other people just calling in to tune in and listen. And so I, I got uh,
1: And I'm back I'm backed up. Ahead. We're back we're backed up on our um, our X Files. So we wanna get a number sure. of X files in. We're backed up, way backed up.
2: Great. Yeah, we'll do we will do just that. So thank you all for Those of you who are tuning in, calling in just to listen, and for those of you who are uh, calling in to participate in the Recovery Sport Time segment, we're going to take a quick music break, and we will get you all on the other
3: side.
0: G radios recovery support time where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery related questions and issues recovery support time where it's our time to help you
1: on recovery see I'm
3: returning oh, she-
2: in mid-season form here even with a month and a half off I got you right where I wanted you that time
1: six four <laughs> six five six four ninety nine zero nine is the number if you want to call in um, before we get to the phones I'm going to um, do an x-file question which is mixed in with a story <clears throat> Um so here's the question and it's from Samuel in Oregon. Is telling my child about my prior addiction issues a wise thing to do? if so, what are or what is the best um, to talk to them about it well that's the way it's written so I'm going to answer that question
2: you yeah, I'm sorry, could you reread that or repeat that. I know it was written in a, in a way, okay, but I so wanted
1: to rehear that. It says, is telling my child about my prior addiction issues a wise thing to do? Question mark. If so, okay. uh, it looks like it says, what are or is the best way to talk to them about it?
2: Okay.
1: So, <clears throat> it, I, I laugh, and you'll find out why I laugh when I read that, because it brought back a memory you know my daughters didn't know anything about my history um, and as you know as they were growing up going through adolescence you know 7 8 9 10 12 13 etc um i didn't make a conscious effort to keep it from them but um i when when my wife and i would talk about you know daytop or whatever um i would make a comment and I wouldn't even be thinking about it, but they just weren't perceptive enough to pick up on it. Okay. So now my daughters are, you know, they were at the time, I think when this happened, one was, um, in high school, you know, senior one, the other one was a freshman, whatever the case may be. And we were having some kind of conversation. And again, not even thinking about it. Um, I said something about, uh, day top or, or, it might have been the I might have used the phrase well when I was in daytop or something like that and, and and was talking about something having to do with that and my oldest daughter <laughs> came you know she you know stepped in from the living room and she said wait a second daddy you was a crackhead <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: oh the expression on oh, her scary. face a smile and a laugh to my soul and of course that started a larger conversation because now you know they were finally you know could put two and two together from all these conversations that they may have heard and now they're going back in their minds um, and you know Chris that they, they, they grew up in the facility um, you know they spent right. a lot of time yeah. in the adolescent facility in the adult facility you know et cetera.
2: Um, I spent time they, uh, I, I remember when they were real young but getting into Basketball man I, I Coached them up on how to operate in the paint A couple of times Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So But they didn't you know have the Nitty gritty Understanding or details of what my background was And when she said that You know she had a mixture Of disdain On her face and And, and puzzle And puzzle puzzled um and quizzical look um like wait a second are you saying that my father was a crackhead and i said yep i was <clears throat> and of course that then started a large kind con- of a larger context conversation of you know how things came into being um but uh we got, as a family we got a great laugh out of that um, because we knew that that day was coming. We just did, never knew how it was going to manifest itself. Um, <clears throat> right. but, so to answer Samuel's question of um, telling your child, well, one, it depends on how old the child is. Um, I, I'm a firm believer in, in something like this in terms of talking about what your prior life was, prior experience, etc. Um, in this arena – that you know later is better you you know you don't have to jump the gun you wait until the you know mind is their mind is developed they have the capacity to understand intellectual ability to put things in proper context things of that nature and only you would know when that time is um, but those are the things you would be looking for before you would have that um conversation but you will have that conversation at some time in some way shape or form because uh, they will find out. They will find out. So it should not be a goal to purposely keep it from them forever and ever and ever. Although I am purposely yeah. never, ever going to tell my mother that I used to steal radios out of cars when I was 15. Um, just can't bring myself to tell her. Um and I have to make sure I edit that out of this uh, podcast so that no one can use it against yeah, me. I was gonna
2: say, <laughs> <you got that.
3: laughs>
1: because she she will be she she's she's planning on visiting later in the fall, so I don't want her picking up any just clicking on something in here and hearing you know what, right? Because you know, mother mothers don't care if it was thirty five years ago or forty years ago. It you know it, it time doesn't exist for them it, with things like that. As far as they're concerned, it happened yesterday um, So that's Samuel Alright, let's get to uh, A lot of X-Files And let's get to the phones And let's get to George from Long Beach Welcome to the show Hey, what's up? Hey How can mm-hmm. we help you?
4: Um, I guess my question would be here I'm over here in uh O C G in East Palo Alto and oh. there's a lot of unwritten uh oh. philosophies. Right? So there's a lot of things that are like I don't know how to say this, like they have rules and then they have rules that aren't written and they get like confusion, you know what I mean? So I was just trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with that and also what would be the best way to deal with, like, because, you know, some days people feel like, or like, for me, like, I'll feel like, oh, I can do it and everything's good, and then there's other days where I won't feel like that. What's the best way to get through the days, and what are some of the things that I can do during that time to make sure that I don't, you know what I mean, do anything that's dumb, you know what I mean, that's going to hurt myself or use again, and then until I get to those better days,
1: I'll take the last one first.
4: Okay, <laughs> sorry about that.
1: That that one is easy, figuratively speaking, or literally speaking, rather. Um, you just don't act off your feelings because those are just those are just feelings that you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis, hour-to-hour basis, you know, afternoon-to-afternoon basis. But your feelings should not control and dictate what you do. Got it. And that's what you're trying to slow that process down. You're trying to not be impulsive and react off of your feelings. So the brain has to come in to help. You can acknowledge how you're feeling. You know, I don't feel like being here today. Or I feel like using today. You you can openly acknowledge that. As a matter of fact, it is always better to acknowledge how you feel, no matter how dark, ugly it may be. Because that just that process of doing it to yourself, even if you're talking to yourself in your mind, in your head... Mm-hmm. You're acknowledging the reality of how you feel, and at the same time, you're allowing the brain just some time to move in there and say, okay, that's just how I feel. doesn't mean I have to do anything. Because I'm sure one thing that you have noticed is that feelings come and go. Correct. Feelings come and go. So when, when you feel like, hey, I, I can do this, I want to do this, Okay, that may go from you for a little bit. And the other one comes, the negative one comes in, and I don't, I'm not sure if I can do this. I'm not sure if I want to do this. Well, that one will go also. The hope is that the longer a person stays engaged in treatment, they get more time on the experience of, you know what, I can do this, because they've been there longer.
4: And, it and they're like
1: actually, by being that. there longer, they're proving it to themselves that they can do it. So they have they have actual proof that they can do it because they're actually doing it. Okay. The first one? Yeah, we got a lot of unwritten philosophies. And I'm, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly about whether or not you said whether or not they're bendable or not. Was that your question?
4: No, it's just that so there's a lot of unwritten ones and they get confused because like someone will say this and someone will say that, you know. And I just feel like in this environment it creates a lot of confusion.
3: Yeah, and but like, um,
4: then it creates but, a lot of drama. And I'm just curious, is like. Yeah, you know, but, mean, you're, you, you are, right, but you're you you
1: are right. But you 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 are an individual, okay. And the fact that you can even identify the confusion, identify the drama that it creates, okay, allows you the ability to sift through that. And you, you can read and you can see on the walls what the unwritten philosophies are and understand what they mean, okay? And someone may try and add confusion into it, add drama into it, but you can sift through all of that and still get to the root of what it means what it, and understand it, put it into action, etc. You can't escape. You can't escape real life, even if you're in a residential environment. It's going to mimic real life. So there's going to be distractions. There's going to be drama. There's going to be confusion. you got to learn how to deal with that.
4: okay. okay. okay I had another question. What about uh, encountering... Uh-oh, groups? a twofer,
1: like, a twofer. Go ahead.
4: So, like... I've only been here two and a half weeks And I haven't done Like I haven't encountered anybody Because I feel like Sometimes like They're a little petty And I'm just wondering If I should do it If I feel like it's petty Or like You know When you run well, a slip And it Go ahead
1: You don't respect your feelings That's the bottom line You don't respect your feelings You're not supposed to pass judgment on them whether or not they're petty, important, not important, etc. You're supposed to respect them. Okay. And the proof, me. the Sorry. proof to you that they're quote unquote not petty, is that you still can speak to them. So, this whole process of writing out a slip, writing out what the feeling is, putting it in the box, encountering the person, learning how to articulate your feelings, learning how to tell another human being how you feel behind something you experienced in an interaction with them. Understand and listen carefully to how I worded that.
4: Articulate your feelings. That's good.
1: Articulate your feelings in regards to an experience you had with it, an, an interaction you had with another person. I didn't say, oh, how they made you feel. Because it's not about they. It's not about them. It's not about the other person. It's your feelings. You own them. Okay. But you've got to respect them. And the first step that we try and teach people to respect their feelings is yet dropping slips and encountering people to tell them about your feelings in regards to something that you experienced with them. It's practice, because when you you go back out into the world, the number one thing that you're going to have, I don't want to say struggle, but that you're going to be faced with mastering is your interpersonal relationships and your intrapersonal relationships. So, enter will be, let's say, your immediate family, loved ones, and whatnot, and intra, your, you know, your workmates and your 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 friends outside the circle, et cetera, et cetera. But just having relationships with people and mastering that, and part of that is learning how to respect your feelings, hold your boundaries, enforce your boundaries, and you're losing out on that practice by not participating in the encounter group process. Okay? Got it. All right. Thank you, sir.
4: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: All right. All right. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye. Mr. Producer? Yes, sir. One thing I don't like is finding out we have clients that are in our program that are just uh passerbys. Yeah,
2: right, very true.
1: Standing at the bus stop watching the, the treatment just go by, up and down the road. Oh no,
2: can't Gotta jump on board. Even if you don't, even if you don't completely trust or haven't completely bought in yet, jump on board, man. Make it happen.
1: Now, the reason why the, you could see how important this is and how it ties into what we were talking about earlier in our topic, because since people don't get, he he was counting the weeks. I'm here ten weeks, so he hasn't, and he may not because. Usually, let's say back in the old days, when someone was going to be here twelve, thirteen months, they'd start out with the counting the days. They go to counting the weeks. They go to counting the months, and usually by the the, the third month, the first trimester, they're done. They're they counting. They're now just fully immersed and just living. Okay. So he's still yeah. counting the weeks, and the you know obvious thing is that. Well, he's ultimately only going to get about twelve weeks before he has to move on to his the next destination and back in the day at ten weeks, if you weren't participating and what have you, well that's you know all that goes with that first trimester all all of those things are are possibilities of not participating, not confronting your feelings, not be not respecting your feelings, not you know not feeling like you want to be here or if you want to do this or not all of that stuff is normal but the powers that be ultimately are saying well look you better get on your horse you better get on your horse but that's not real that's not not how the process works for humans the reality is people are going to have doubt am I going to be able to do this
3: And it may change,
1: and it may change as he's experiencing on a day-to-day basis, or week-to-week basis.
2: Yeah, and even in the best-case scenario, say someone's entirely ready, they have no doubt, they have bought in from day one and they want to do it, you're still going to experience setbacks and struggles.
3: Yep. Yep. Yep, yep.
1: Uh, Let's see. I got another good X-Files question, which again, I didn't plan this. It's just, I'm just picking them up, picking them up off the pile and like, wow. Okay. I can tell a half story, maybe a quarter, a third story with this one. So it looks like Ariel or Ariel, however it's pronounced, how do you keep an open mind with recovery while dealing with a parent dying So that's a deep subject. Um, I can have empathy for someone in that position, not for the same details, but just the feelings <clears throat> um, My experience is you know. Uh, it' was still young young in recovery, out of treatment, but still young in recovery, and you know experiencing loss, having your soul temporarily ripped out of you it's what it feels like et cetera um and obviously so- you know so allow, allowing the body to do what it does, surviving the experience move, moving forward life et cetera um Ultimately, I I can only revert back to Felix Arroyo and his, his mantra. I mean, this was like his calling card saying, I mean, you just have to feel what you feel when you feel it. And what he meant by that is that you don't try and escape it. You don't try and hide from it. You don't try and run from it. You embrace it. And so even if it's as this gentleman, I think it's a male, it might be experiencing dealing with uh, a um, parent that's dying and the eventual loss that's going to come with that, you have to embrace that and know that you will be able to survive it. Feelings-wise, you'll be able to survive it if, if you allow yourself to experience it. So many people try and spend time and ways and thinking of ways and devising ways and th- whatnot to avoid it, escape it, hide from it, run from it. When, believe it or not, the, the easiest thing, the quickest route to recovery In the literal sense and the figurative sense And what he's talking about Is to meet it head on That's what we were built and designed to do As humans We can deal with loss We can deal with grief We can deal with the pain Alas A-L-A-S I don't think we were made to deal with it alone So you shouldn't be holed up in a room in the dark. You should be sharing whatever you're feeling. Speaking to whatever you're feeling and experiencing. Putting words to the feelings. And there may be physical emotion involved. That's all part of the purging process of the body and etc. So, you know, get as deep as we want and as technical as we want, but... Grief is grief. Loss is loss. Don't try and run from it. And even with that, my, I would say to him, you are still the most important person in the world. So you, your recovery, and what you're trying to do still has to come first. How do you keep an open mind? I'm not sure what he meant by that. If if he means, how do I stay focused on my recovery? How do I stay engaged with my recovery? If he means that, let's just say that that's what he means. While this is also going on on the other side, you know, off to the side here. Well, actually, staying engaged, staying connected is what's going to help the process of that that loss that you're going to be experiencing
3: All right. it's
1: just getting the person to believe it so that was that Charles in Bakersfield, California how does my behavior affect my recovery Mr. Producer, you want to answer that one?
2: Oh, uh, how does it affect my recovery? The first part cut out. I heard how does it affect my how does what affect my recovery?
1: My behavior. What I do.
2: Behavior. Oh uh, yeah, um I guess I, I'd like to throw in a little um like a psychological uh uh Something you learn in Psych 101 Psychology, and it's something called you learn about um, cognitive dissonance, is the terminology used. And essentially, it speaks to the way as humans our behaviors um, kind of fall in line generally with our morals or values, our belief system. Uh, And if there's a disconnect between the two, it causes some unease. Um, Your mind and body are not at rest. You are in some sort of internal conflict. And in order for that conflict to be resolved, one of two things has to happen. You have to change uh, your moral compass, so to speak, or your belief system, uh, which is usually very hard to do, especially as an adult. Your beliefs are kind of what they are. And then the second way to put your your mind at ease then to resolve this internal conflict is to change the behavior and get the behavior in line with your belief system. And so kind of an easy analogy that I like to throw out there to folks when I'm describing it is you can imagine a professional athlete who smokes cigarettes. Uh, on one hand, being a professional athlete requires you to take care of your body to the best of your ability, Uh, because that is your asset, so to speak. And uh, usually if you become a professional athlete, and that's, you know, health has been something that's been a priority for you and being in shape and performing as well as you can, these are all things that you believe in. And uh, smoking cigarettes is out of line with with those beliefs. That behavior uh, does not, coincide very well with what it is you believe and what it is you do. And so you can either, right, completely just forget about the fact that you believe being healthy and in shape and fit is important and that uh, this life you've built for yourself being a professional athlete is actually something that you don't respect or don't appreciate. And so you'll give all of that up uh, in lieu of, you know, smoking smoking cigarettes, if that's what makes you happy. Or you say, you know, what, this behavior does not really fall in line with my belief system and what I believe is important, and so I'm going to need to change this behavior, and so I decide to quit smoking cigarettes.
3: <coughs>
2: Excuse me. So um, you can see that that might be the more logical approach or the more linear approach to accomplishing this kind of uh, internal conflict or dilemma struggle that you have. So... He's speaking to that on a much larger scale Behavior, how in behavior falling in line with recovery Well, um, for one, I imagine if you're Seeking recovery that on some level, maybe deeper Than conscious, that you understand it's wrong or it's not good Or there's something about the lifestyle of drugs and using drugs that um, Is not working for you and it's something that You'd like to change. You don't, you don't believe that's a good way to live your life. Um, and if that's the case, then all the behaviors that came along with that lifestyle and that, that line of thinking and decision-making, those behaviors are going to have to change in order for your belief and your mind and your thought process to be in line with what it is you're putting out in society and how you're behaving, whether that be uh, hang, hanging around at bars every Friday and Saturday night Saturday night with a group of friends who are drinking and getting high. Um, you know, that's a behavior. The simple act of using is, uh, is a behavior. Maybe one of your behaviors would be the absence of a behavior, which would be going to meetings or reaching out when you need support, things of that nature. Um, that risk goes on and on and on. And um, so in that regard, the question is very vague. But in answering the question specifically, Um, the way you think and the way you go about life is very much in line with how you behave on a regular basis. And so if you want to quit using or if you uh, are seeking living a life of recovery, the behaviors that went along with your life before that are going to have to change for everything to be congruent. I don't know if if that makes sense or if there's anything you'd like to add to that. Mr. (laughs) Host.
1: Well that's a very nice long well thought out answer. I think I would rather refer back and well and, and well stated <laughs> well stated answer but i I think i'd rather refer back to my peer, basil Francis, and how he would respond uh to your analysis, which is uh He would rather go with the old, uh, you know what? I think a good old-fashioned West Indian licking will do the job. (laughs)
3: Yes, (laughs) that
2: too, yes, indeed. That's maybe not so much what you're reading in books, but that's life experience right there.
1: That'll straight straight you out. Good old-fashioned West Indian (laughs) licking. That's right. (laughs) Okay. How are we doing on time, sir?
2: Uh, We are good. We have about, I want to say, six minutes.
1: All right. Uh, Let's continue to hit our X-Files. Ryan from San Mateo wants to know, how do you stay sober when going to parties? Well, for some, that might be a dilemma. For others, not. All depends on what your what your goal is. Some people, depending on what I find out about you and your background, your history, I might advise you. You know what? I would stay away from the party scene, the party you know, the club environment for a while. Um, others, I might say, you know what? Maybe you might want to go there as part of your social ex- experimentation, um, and if you are firm in your recovery and what have you, then you know being in a vicinity of where alcohol was sold and people may be doing other things under the cover of darkness um, should not impact you having a good time in a positive way. You just have to pick and choose where you're going and what's a good place, good environment for you, and so on and so forth. Um, interestingly enough, I'm not a big fan of recommending to people um, like NA and AA dances and, and uh, events and things of that nature. I am not saying that those are not good and positive places for people to go and socialize and and and, and get to know one another and all of that good stuff. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not, wouldn't be one of my first recommendations um, because I prefer for people to uh, experience environments where. They don't know what they may have or have not in common with people. Whereas, you know, you go to an AA or NA convention or party or, you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I don't even know what they call them now. Hangout nights. Friday night, NA hangout, hangout nights. Um, you can pretty much presume that most of the people there, you know, have a similar thing in common. And to me, that's, that's not challenging. What's challenging is you don't know what you have in common with the person and you have to go through the process of finding out. Um, like I said, though, it doesn't mean that, I, you know, that cannot be a part of your repertoire of social life, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. If you don't want to drink, you're not going to drink. And no one can twist your arm and make you. It's as simple as that. And if you have a doubt, stay away from the environment. That's quick. Uh, Fedor. So I'm guessing he's asking this question with a smirk on his face. So I'll say it with a sarcastic smirk. How many people really get the full help and stay clean for more than a year? I don't know. Do you know, Mr. Producer? We've got a
2: skeptic Uh, upon us.
1: I don't know Whoever wants to However many want to It's a want to thing So how many? I don't know Because getting the help It's self-help I remember they used to say it all the time Up at Swan Lake It's self-help You got to go get it It's not going to come to you Even though it did come to you whether you wanted it or not, it came to you. But you can imagine, in a in a in a in a house of 250, that you know you might find a place to hide, stay in the shadows, and whatnot. So you weren't really seeking your treatment, engaging in self-help. But um, if you do. Whatever the treatment experience looks like, if you want it, you'll get it. And you'll get that full experience. Whatever the definition of full is, if you want it, you'll get it. And the goal obviously should not be to stay clean for more than a year. The goal should be, I'm done with that lifestyle. I'm doing something different. And that's forever. Moving forward. And then that conversation is done. There's there's no years and counting the days and counting the weeks and the months, whatnot. No, that life is over. So that's it for Mr. Fedor. Uh, Let's see. Is physical exercise an important part of recovery? I love that question. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And never more was that reinforced in me and during my experience up at Swan Lake, that is where I learned that, it, no, it's not all about just sitting in a group and learning about the mental and emotional aspects of my being. It was also working on, you know, improving the physical side of myself um, and getting that back to where it needs to be. Um, or putting some focus on it if there was never a focus. Taking care of things if I let things slide. Finding out about things if I didn't know about them. Things of that nature. So, yeah, physical exercise and the physical aspect of recovery, very important. There's not just one aspect, it's physical, mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual all of these dynamics that come together to form that that one whole recovery thing so to speak they all have their own individual and equal importance and and any one of them that's left that doesn't get nurtured is going to be like a uh like um an electronic device drawing amps on a 20 amp fuse but the device needs a 25 amp fuse so every time that device goes on boom it blows the fuse cuz you right. know i need more i need i need i need a stronger fuse now certainly i just confused my own self with that analogy but i'll figure it out when i get home and report I back i think it
2: was well stated <laughs>
1: Oh, okay. Going through yeah, them again.
2: Well, we're you're up against it, sir, so uh, how much we're gonna how much have to have you sign off so as not to cut oh. me off with your last second cutoff.
3: Okay. Well, all right.
1: I can't how much time do I have?
2: You got ten
1: seconds. Oh. I can't do a, a question in ten seconds. Okay. All right, well, we're not bad for our first show back after a month and change. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'll let you do your official sign-off.
2: Beautiful. Yeah, well, it did indeed feel good to be back, and hopefully we are back in a couple of weeks. We appreciate people being patient with us. It has been incredibly busy around here with all the changes that we spoke about during the show today. Uh, With that said, we do appreciate everybody who called in to listen to the show, everyone who continues to give us their ongoing support. We do appreciate it thoroughly. Uh, We do appreciate everybody who calls in to uh, participate in the Recovery Support Time segment. That is also awesome. Uh, We're here for you guys. Uh, Hopefully we do talk to you guys in a couple of weeks from now. And until then, we wish everybody a couple of productive weeks and some safe and fun weekends ahead.
5: make it, everybody wants to be what they want to be, I'm not happy when I try to fake it, no, that's why I'm easy.
0: our show for this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast tuesday at 4 p.m pacific standard time on blog talk forward slash ocg radio like us friend us and follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ocg work ca and on twitter at ocg work ca you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of o-